This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 today. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 27 through 29 to get us started. So Ecclesiastes 7 verse 27 says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And so this follows another round of rebuking human pursuits for wealth, and Solomon is turning again to exalt wisdom and humbling oneself before God. So, you know, if you, as we move through the chapters, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If you pay attention in just about every chapter of Ecclesiastes, you, you're going to find some form of the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, you know, which famously comes in chapter 12 and verse 13, right? What's the conclusion of the matter when all has been heard? Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, right? So he's wrestling to figure all these different things out in life and the unfairness of life and the futility of different scenarios and the march of time. And, and uh, you know, he, he as he begins to admit here, I, I haven't found, I haven't found the answer. Uh, but he does make some observations along the way that are useful to us, but it culminates in just trusting God, right? That Ultimately what matters is he is the, God is the source of all wisdom. If you continue reading in Ecclesiastes 12, the, the end of that, through the end of the book, he makes that point as well, that God is the source of all wisdom and what matters and what's most important is humbling ourselves before him. And here he's focusing on making that point alongside of this one, humbling oneself before God, especially, especially, or even in times of oppression. So if you back up to verse 7, he says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Hard times are are often used as an excuse for doing wicked things, right? Or, or, or curving the rules a little bit. Like accepting a bribe. You know, I'll compromise here or there, you know, but it's not a big deal. And uh, it's, you know, times times are difficult, so I, I could use a little more and nobody will know. Right, and Solomon is is saying that when we rationalize that way, we are we're corrupting ourselves. Um, even, if, even though it might be a convenient excuse, it's uh, we're not going to escape the consequences of it. You know, I can think of a number of people who... You know, unfortunately, it seemed like they were waiting for some hard time or some tragic life event so that it could be their reason for leaving the Lord or going off and, and engaging in things that they otherwise wouldn't, right? And so Solomon's point is that adversity and prosperity offer many temptations to stop living wisely and start acting like a fool. And he's saying, don't be duped. Um as he continues here, he says, when it comes to oppression and suffering, this is verses 8 through 10 now. He says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In other words, he's saying, wait, wait patiently for the Lord. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different times and circumstances 
that can provoke anger in you and frustration, and you might be tempted to lash out. But he's saying, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. In other words, just just wait to see what the outcome is, right? Because something that seems so terrible now, might act, God can use to actually make you better and, and transform your life in a good way. And so wait patiently for him. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and you will better understand the time of your suffering looking back on it rather than trying to make rash conclusions about it now. Right? So don't succumb to anger because it's fools who become impatient. It's fools who take that course, who are easily provoked by life when they're inconvenienced or someone slights them and they complain, you know, or as Solomon says, they long for the good old days. Don't say to yourself, I were the former days better than these. So it's kind of like our expression of, you know, talking about the good old days. You know, we have these rose tinted glasses through which we view the past sometimes. And, and God is working in his providence at his own pace. And so the exhortation here is trust trust him. Trust in him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, which is what Solomon says elsewhere in one of my favorite passages in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And to do anything else is to call into question God's wisdom, right? As, as Job did in Job 29, verses 2 through 5. But clinging to wisdom of the Lord is what provides an advantage. Look at what Solomon says in verses 11 and 12, right after that. He says, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun for wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom keeps its possessors alive, right? So he's saying that his point is not even money can do that, right? There's some, there's security to be found there and having, you know, affluence or savings, but, uh, but even that can fail you. But wisdom, wisdom won't. And so we have to be ever mindful that God is ordering the course of events and the wisest choice that we can make is just to trust the one who orders and controls everything. And we we look at what's happening. We think, well, that's crooked or we think that's straight. Um, but don't trust in your own judgment. Trust that he's in control because God allows adversity and prosperity to ebb and to flow in this life, right? And that's what Solomon reminds us of, verses 13 and 14 now. He says, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. That's unpredictable. That reminds us of a New Testament teaching, right? Don't say, James says, don't say we'll go to this city or that city and we'll do business and be prosperous, but rather say, if the Lord wills, we will live and go and do this or, or that. Right. And so it's a it's a mindset, it's an attitude. It's not that it's wrong to make plans or to, you know, outline goals or anything like that. No, that's not the point. Make your plans, you know, strive, you know, to to achieve your goals. But remember. There's a lot that's out of your control. And also remember to keep a humble mindset before God, that I, I want to pursue whatever dreams and goals and plans I have in this life only insofar as I can do that and, and humbly serve God. You know, the most joyous times in our lives and the most adverse times are are under His oversight. And both happen under His permission. It, you know, it's I think it's easy to blame God when things go wrong, and that's typically what happens, right? Um, but 
I think also what typically happens is that we forget to thank him when things are going good. And when good things come, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from the Father. And so as children of God, we should have a unique perspective of adversity because we can benefit from it. He's told us that we can. And um, again, insofar as we, we trust in him. And so understanding that God has allowed such trials to overtake us, and they're, they're a test by design, and they're a test that can produce greater, uh, a stronger and hardened soldiers, a more refined character within us, that's, that's crucial. That's crucial. James 1 and verse 2, James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Right? So not just count it joy, but he says count it all joy. And that's, you know, you're not going to be able to do that if without, without knowing and understanding and trusting that there is a, a, an infinitely higher power and being behind the universe and that he's personal and loving and caring and he wants to have fellowship with you and he cares about you specifically and personally and he watches over every detail of your life. And so whether or not we can explain or understand the timing or severity of the trial is, is, is irrelevant, right? If, because we, have, we should have that knowledge and trust in, in God. Without it, we're, we're going to wither and die and buckle under pressure like everybody else, you know, and run around screaming the sky is falling and complain and, you know, follow that course of self-destruction. But Christians who have security in Christ— and the blessed assurance that comes through him and salvation of their souls, they can look to God and and trust in him. And God has told us we can overcome. And we can not only overcome, but expect to grow from such experiences and be better people. And, And crucially, too, we can even have joy. As hard as it is to imagine you know, again, these are easy things to talk about and to and to say, right? When you're not in the midst of tragedy, but God is saying you can have joy. Why? Because He's He's proven His love for you and giving His Son on the cross. Because He's He's promised that despite what happens here, you have everything to look forward to if you are in Christ Jesus. We may not know what will happen in our lives in the future, here and now, what will come after us, but we can have peace in knowing that all is from God and that He will be true to His word to deliver us in the end if we continue to trust in Him. Uh, So it's pretty simple and straightforward, right? Um, But we get so distracted by all our questions and doubts and, and, uh, and, you know, and and complaints and accusations, and God is just saying, trust me. Trust me. And so Solomon goes on to address uh, human misconceptions about the relationship that righteousness and wicked have to one's prosperity and, and adversity. This is something that you encounter a lot in this this life, uh, in that you know folks see a correlation between, or assume that there's a correlation between someone's physical wealth or material wealth and their standing with God. Right. So, in other words, if someone's right with God or they're righteous, uh, then they're going to be materially blessed. But if someone is uh, not right with God. If they're, an e- if they're an evil person, then they won't be material, materially blessed. And that is, you know, that's just a completely broken way to look at things, not only from experience, right? It just that doesn't even pass the smell test, right? We can look out in the world around us and see, no, there's good people who are not materially well off. 
and there's wicked people who are materially well off. In fact, that's how it is most of the time, right? And so Solomon is saying, don't, you know, that's a broken way to view life, right? And this, he says in verse 15, and this meaninglessness In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So not everyone who does good has good things happen to them in this life. Not everyone who lives wickedly experiences the immediate consequences of their wickedness. Solomon anticipates kind of a cynical reaction to this truth. So he says, don't be over-righteous. Neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? So do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Right. And that's kind of a, that's a real cryptic uh, saying, right? That's kind of, that's hard to unpack. But what I believe he's saying is, is, is that if you think that you can earn earthly prosperity from God's hand through righteousness, you're going to be confounded by that. You're going to find, and you're going to be disappointed most likely. Uh, this is you know, this was something that I'm kind of digressing here, but it's it's illustrated in the New Testament wherein Jesus is confronting people just like this, right? The the Pharisees are the particular sect in Luke seven who says that they love money. Um, let me make sure I have that that citation right. I say it's Luke seven, but I get confused. But they're they're mocking Jesus because that's the context where he says. Um. You can only have one master. You can't serve God and money. And the Pharisees laughed at him. It's actually Luke 16. It's not Luke 7. Um, So Luke 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then notice verse 14, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and were scoffing at Jesus. Jesus says, You're the ones who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is prized before men is detestable in the sight of God. Uh, so, this you know that's a glimpse into the character of those individuals, right? They they were persuaded, at least in their own minds, I can I can love material wealth and pursue it, and at the same time <clears throat> be have God first in in my life. And in fact, they're laughing and mocking Jesus for saying the opposite. And like us, they were confounded and disappointed and even made angry by Jesus' statement. And so they would try so very hard to become over-righteous, right? To put on this display as Jesus, you know, the way that he describes it, like they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the hem of their garments and they they love the chief seats and the synagogues and banquets and in the marketplaces, they love the greetings of rabbi, right? So in every context, right, every it's just like oozing out of them like this self-satisfaction. And, oh, look at you know, look at me and look how righteous I am. And oh, by the way, I'm really rich too. And uh, Luke 18, you know, thank thank you, Lord, as the Pharisees praying there, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector who has all this sin, right? And, and so <clears throat> someone can try very very hard to do that and be over righteous, as Solomon says. But he's saying, you're destroying yourself. Why do that? Why destroy yourself? In other words, you're, you're just phoning it in. And you, you may know it, or you may have arrived at a point where you can't even tell that you're phoning it in even more, any, anymore. But God certainly does. And so when Solomon says, don't be over-righteous, he doesn't mean don't be too good. 
His point is don't pretend. His point is don't have this fanatical kind of self-righteousness that will destroy you. Notice if you continue reading, he says, again, verse 19, wisdom strengthens a wise person more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and does not ever sin. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you do not hear your servant cursing you. For you know yourself, you have cursed many others. And so Solomon is saying that a, a, a wise person understands these principles that I'm not that I'm not humble um, that I have, excuse me that I'm not sinless that I have sinned and I have in specifically I've you know slandered others or cursed cursed others and so that should keep me humble before God right and and not allow me to be overly righteous and this is bound up with the other point in the verse where he says don't be over wicked don't be a fool why die before your time so Solomon doesn't mean that half-hearted obedience is okay, or that well, if you're a little wicked, that's okay. Just don't be over over wicked. No, it's it's just a different way of stating the same principle. I'm persuaded that given the rest of the context, right? How Solomon never he's never advocated folly or wickedness in anywhere in the book, right? And neither does Scripture, of course. But Solomon's it's just another way of advocating or, or counseling. Live a life that's wise, right? Don't. Don't give yourself over to, to wickedness. And he says, yeah, everybody sins that we read in verses 26 through 29. And here's a specific example of how you might have done that, cursed, cursing somebody else. But recognize you can, you can be righteous with God when you live wisely before him. And recognize, too, that God's judgment is coming. <laughs> Excuse me. So live your life in light of that knowledge. Solomon's only uncertainty about God's judgment was its timing like everything else, it would be in his time, right? So people should avoid folly and wickedness as much as possible and live as wisely and righteously as possible without pretending, without pretending. And I believe that's his point. And so he wraps up this section by pointing out the whole trouble with man, which is where we began with our study reading verses 27 through 29. And the way that he puts it is, is that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So if the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments, right? That's his, that's his conclusion. And this has to be the trouble. This is what gets, gets in our way. Um, as he says in verse 20, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We've sought out many schemes. And so Solomon admonishes us first by saying, you know, calling us to close our heart, in our ears to what people say about us because there's only one judgment that matters and one judge. And then secondly, that we should honestly face our own propensity to sin, right? Stop, you know, honestly face it. You know, in other words, this universal rule or statement applies to all people. We've sought out many schemes. So stop doing that. And he admits, Solomon admits he's unable to figure out people's behavior. And that's what he means by, I I haven't found what my soul has sought repeatedly by adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, right? So there's that phrase again. He says, I haven't found it. And so like Solomon, you know, all we can say is, you know, the vast majority of people that we've encountered, men, man or woman, he's had 
limited or no success in figuring this all out. But he does have one firm conclusion that he's able to draw here, and that's God God didn't make us that way. He made us upright, but we've we were not content to stay there, to remain in that state of uprightness, but instead we rebelled against him, and we have to find a solution to that rebellion. And the solution is our submission to him. And of course, in the new covenant, this, this text is pointing toward the new covenant in anticipation of the Christ who would be the solution to the consequences of our rebellion, right? He, he would be the one who would take away our sins, which invoke the wrath of God and, and make us enemies of God. But now that our sins are, can be taken away through Christ, we can humbly submit to God. We have an open way before his throne. We can be adopted into his family. We have full access to his wisdom and, and power, and we can use that to live wisely here and now as we anticipate his return and be welcomed into his, his heavenly kingdom. Can you honestly say that that's what you're striving to do? To live wisely through submitting to God and having fellowship with Christ and imitating him in all that you do. Appreciate you tuning in today.